Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, entrepreneur and business mentor, Bianca Miller-Cole. And over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Lord Michael Hastings, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite pieces of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. So joining me today is Rose Hulse, founder and CEO of Screen Hits TV discussing how I built it, but will they come? The challenge of being a Black disruptor. Welcome, Rose. Hi, thank you for having me today. So, Rose, please tell me about your first track, (laughs) Eminem, Lose Yourself. What does that track mean to you? I don't know. It's kind of, I loved it when I heard it. It's just like, here's somebody that's, you know, worked their whole life for something and they get one chance, you know, one opportunity and, you know, all the nerves and all the pressure that you have when you're finally at that precipice moment of making something happen, you really have to just really be on point, I guess. And um, that music, that song during that time in my life was just really inspirational. And it still rings true today that when you have that one chance, you don't want to blow it. I love that. And you're probably the first person I've heard analyze that song in that way. (laughs) (laughs) I actually listen to the lyrics of every song. (laughs) Fantastic. So a CEO of Screen TV Hits with over 500,000 subscribers operating in 22 countries. That's quite an achievement, but I'm keen to hear a little bit more about the young Rose Hulse or Adkins, as you once were. (laughs) Yes. Tell me about, um, you're born in Santa Monica, LA, one of three siblings. What memories do you have of your childhood? Um, You know, I grew up in a a home with my mother and my father. I had two sisters and a brother, so I was one of four, um, and one of four. And um, it was a very protective life. You know, we weren't able to really travel outside the Santa Monica borders. We spent weekends at the beach. My my father has a very big family. Family was very important important to um, my mom and my dad. So we spent a lot of time with all my cousins, my uncles and aunts. And um, yeah, it just, you know, camping trips and, you know, time spent at picnics and, you know, going to a different school um, where there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me, but my parents were very, you know, supportive and and ensuring that we were always surrounded by people, whether through family or my father's, um, you know, colleagues or, you know, industry connections, that we were always seeing people in the strongest of light. And at a young age, your parents are often your first role models. 
Tell me a little bit about mom and dad. They're great. My mother um, is a very strong woman. She knows what she wants and she always gets what she wants and she she ran a very tight ship. So I was very good when I was younger because there was no way I was gonna ever cross her. Um, she was really focused on our education, um, clearing up very quickly any sort of misconceptions that I may have heard or learned um, in the outside world that were not correct. Um, and just really, you know, focusing on growing up and, and having a, a great life and, and always being a lady. And, you know, my dad, you know, he was always working, but he was always home after work or when he didn't have an event or, you know, just there. I remember him picking me up and, uh, you know, taking me to get jelly bellies, which were these candies at the time that my mother would never let us have because he couldn't really have sugar. And my dad would always give it to us and, you know, take us to, you know, the fairs and was such a great influence to me. And, you know, my mother wouldn't let me work. When I got older, around 15, I wanted to get a job um, in Santa Monica. My mother was like, no, you're not going to work. You're going to stay focused on your school. And, you know, my father, you know, always supported my mother and, and her, her choices and her upbringing of us, but told me one day you will have the opportunity to work as much as you want. So just take your time and enjoy being a kid and, and learn as much as you can um, through, through myself and your mother. And your dad, was he an entrepreneur? He, he is, yes. He, um, he had inherited um, some land and, and buildings when he was younger, which my mom and my dad decided to, to sell off and turn into commercial real estate um, and, and go in, in that route. And that, that became a very successful business initiative for them. And then they've invested in other small companies along the way. So it was always about you know, building your own, you know, your own wealth and your own story and your own legacy and maintaining that. And I got to grow up around that. So you enjoyed a good education in a private school where you excelled at music. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my family, they're very musical. Well, I would say my father's side of the family are very musical. And um, when we were very young, I think three or four, he opened up this closet of all these instruments. And he's like, okay, pick one. And there was like a clarinet and a flute and an oboe and a trombone. I mean, it was every instrument you could think of. And we also had a, a piano. And... Um, I remember just thinking, wow, so this is gonna be a part of our life. And when I started school, I think around five or six, I joined the like concert band or orchestra and they noticed right away that I had a talent, I guess. And they encouraged me to be a part of a program called Stairway to the Stars, where I was going to be one of four flutes. And that was, that was pretty big. And that kind of started my parents' focus on me um, having, you know, music lessons and, you know, going into classical music and classical education. And that really helped. And it was a huge part of my life until I was about 14, 15. So it really did shape me um, and, and, and how I lived my teenage years and my youth. So contrasting with being a classically trained musician, you stood out in one of the most American pursuits of cheerleading. Can you provide some insight into that fascinating world and, and what it is that captured your interest about cheerleading? I don't know. I think growing up in Santa Monica and seeing every single TV show of that time where it was all about cheerleaders and you know, they all looked a certain way. They all were just a, a certain type of girl. And actually I noticed on my team, there weren't any, you know, girls that looked like me on the cheerleading team, but yet it was like the most coveted role of a girl um, at high school during that time. And um, I just wanted to kind of break the barriers and add a little bit of color to the cheer squad and be a part of that, that story and have it as a part of my, my youth. And so I, 
kind of decided, yeah, I'm going to get on that team, which was quite, which was quite, um, like, you know, I was quite young and I was coming from like music and the symphony orchestra to try to cross over to a very popular kind of team with like, you know, all blonde cheerleaders, but I was determined to, um, to do it. And I remember that summer before the auditions, I said, mom, I want to go to cheer camp. She's like, but you're not a cheerleader. I said, I know, but if I go to cheer camp, I can learn the routines and I could actually probably have a chance at the audition. So my mother sent me to cheer camp at um, University of Irvine. You went on to get a business degree. You're multi-talented, you had lots of choices. You could have joined your father's company. What guided those early career choices for you? Well, I think I always wanted to go into media, entertainment. I, I really am fascinated with the power of media. It really does um, influence and shape a lot of people's opinions. It helps to educate people um, in ways that I think people don't appreciate. You know, there's a lot of people that do sometimes have learning disabilities and they don't learn in the traditional way, but they can learn through, through visual, they can learn through sound, they can learn through, you know, seeing something play out. And I felt it was a really great medium to, to tell truth stories and to really clear up a lot of inaccuracies in history. And so I wanted to get involved in producing and I didn't really know how to go about that. So, you know, my family was on the commercial real estate side and other, you know, other ventures. It was nothing to do with media. And in LA, you really had to um, have, you know, these connections to kind of get in there or you kind of start off as like a runner assistant. But you know, I would never have been able to really get out of that position because um, like some of my friends, they got, got locked in that assistant role, even with a degree. So I decided to kind of say, well, if I can't go through this door, I'll go through the back door. And I decided to, you know, get jobs as the business analyst and, you know, really focus on the business side. And that's kind of where I found, found my path. And that's where I was kind of ushered along um, in forming my career. You grew up in a period where Arnold Schwarzenegger was a political force. Inspired by the Los Angeles mayor, Richard Reardon, you considered a political career. Why was that? Because I believe in change. And, you know, some people like to complain about a number of issues and, you know, that things are unfair and things aren't justified. But I believe the, the quickest way to solve something is just to fix it. And so I'd rather spend my time to change the laws because I, you know, I believe that people will always have their opinions and everybody has their own right to feel however they choose to feel. And no one should ever question that. But what I do believe in deeply is that the law should be equal and fair to everybody, everyone. And so I wanted to start a political career because I wanted to, to change things and make things fair and equitable across the board using legal um, support. And your next track is Jay-Z, Empire State of Mind, a club favorite. <laughs> What memories does this conjure? Um, I was living in New York at the time, and I think that's when the song came out. And, you know, I always wanted to live in New York. You know, I, my family is very much West Coast based. And, um, you know, New York was always the city, I guess, of dreams from a business standpoint. It's where you could really go and, and create. And I, I didn't really know what to expect when I moved to New York. I just knew I was ready for that adventure and to live in this big metropolis. And, you know, when I went there, you know, the whole lyrics of the song that, you know, you could do anything, you could be anything in this concrete jungle, you can make so much of your life. And it doesn't matter, you know, where you've come from or what you've done, the opportunities are endless. And it just is such a positive, uplifting song. And so, again, 
um, it really was like I rocked out to it often and it, it was it just the most exciting song of the time and I was living in New York <laughs> two great choices and and I love how much you've thought about those choices they are great <laughs> Okay, so tell me about your first role at Wider uh, Publishing and its connection to Vibe magazine. Yes, yeah, so actually Wider Publication, um, it was, I was, I was doing an internship. Um, it was a paid internship in college and they eventually offered me a full-time job that I took um, and it was in the sales department. And, you know, they kind of said, we want you to work for us. What area of the company or business would you like to be in? And, and Weeder Publication had Shape Magazine and Men's Fitness. So it was mm. a high gloss magazine in the 90s and, you know, a really respected company. And I thought, this is great. And I looked at all the different roles and, you know, I looked at research and I looked at writing and I looked at accounting. But what I was the most fascinated about was the sales. And, you know, sales is like hit or miss, you know, it's, 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 it's a unappreciative business, you know, a role, nobody really wants to be in sales. It's, um, you know, it's very hard, but I always saw sales as the people making everybody else's salary, <laughs> the ones bringing the money into the company, making everyone wealthy. And I thought if somebody can learn how to sell, they can build their own business and learn how to make money for themselves. And I also at the time thought it'd be great to just go out to lunches and, and make all these contacts. <laughs> and, and, um, and so I decided to go into sales and it was, in my opinion, the most powerful and respected position in the company, even though it was always seen as oh, those salespeople. But they were the ones really, you know, growing that business. And so your professional life began to flourish, working with Promax and BDA with a focus on TV broadcasting. How did this time direct your career? So um, after Weeder Publications, I went to a company called Miller Publishing where they had Vibe Magazine and Spin and they, they put me in a business analyst role. And that's when I started getting in the numbers. So even though I wasn't on sales, I started to really crunch the numbers and understand research and how that information could actually help influence sales. And, but then again, I was kind of being pulled more into, well, I think you're really good in a sales role. You know, how can we get you more involved in the company? In any case, I stayed there for a few years and I was promoted to, you know, really oversee all of the um, circulation and um, analytics for this, this big company. Um, but then it was time for me to move on. And I, I kind of felt that, you know, I had, I remember somebody came up to me and said, look, you know, I'm in a more important role and you give me all this information and you do as I ask and you let me take credit for this, but I will help you kind of grow in your business. And I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I will always get credit for what I do. And so I, I started looking and it was really hard. And I, you know, my dad was saying, come back, you know, work on commercial real estate, you have good skills, but it, it wasn't for me. And I, I started looking, I couldn't get into a studio job, no matter how hard I tried. And I just said, you know, I'm just going to send out 100 CVs to 100 jobs that I could possibly work at and grow. And I probably would get five or six um, interviews, and I would get two or three jobs out of those interviews. And one was at a company called Promax. And they were a nonprofit organization that focused on the biggest names in television, um, you know, people from Viacom, CBS, Disney, Fox, and it was like the chief marketing officers and I would have access to them. And so I got this job and that changed the entire course of my life because the CEO was a guy named Glenn, Glenn Brelsford. Um, he was from England and he was very supportive in, in my growth and quickly, you know, put me in a corporate development role, which gave me access to every area of the business. And 
you know, I was able to take something with absolutely no support and no funding and make it happen and become one of the most successful um, areas of the business. I was able to really, you know, create a stronger brand name for, for the company. And I got to meet amazing people like o Oprah, Malcolm Gladwell, um, and just see some of these businesses, you know, from the top up, how they operate and how they work. And that shifted me 100% into the business side of, of media. And what was it like being in such close proximity to some of these huge stars? So you said Oprah, you know, Will Smith, Jamie Foxx. What was that like? Well, I was quite young at the time, but I said, oh, I want to be up there one day. I want to be, you know, presenting at one of these conferences. I want to, you know, be able to represent in my small corner of the world. And even though I knew I was never going to be an actor or a singer or, you know, a talk show host, I wanted to be that on the business side and make the business side of entertainment you know, fun, because it's always the people in the background that do all the work and that create all these opportunities and they never um, get the, the, rec the, the recognition or the credit. And I wanted to, you know, kind of bring to light what everybody does on that backside um, to make all of this happen. And um, I said, one day I'll be presenting. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps not such a linear step, you became an employee of Hollywood Reporter where you started to get an inside track on these former aspirational superstars. Yeah, I thought this is exciting. I'm kind of like, you know, rolling with Robert De Niro and, and Snoop mm -hmm. Dogg and all these, these celebrities. Um, and, you know, the reporter was, while it was not an obvious role, it was a strategic role for me because I needed to get access and in front of people that I wouldn't have had access to. And in LA at the time, The Hollywood Reporter was, um, it opened up every red rope. It was a calling card. Anyone would take a meeting with you. And while I was still young and a promotions manager there, I used that card to get those meetings to help prepare me for what I wanted to do in the future. Okay. So the, uh, your management role at The Hollywood Reporter coincided with the kind of heavy days of Miramax. At the time, were there any rumours about the now infamous Harvey Weinstein and predatory criminal practices? Of course there were. I mean, it's, um, I mean, first of all, it's just Hollywood in general. I think, you know, my parents raised me really well. So, you know, religion was a part of our, our, our life. I was very much... Um, informed what was out there, what was lurking behind the corners and what some people expected people to do to, to kind of, you know, and that was just never an option for me. Um, and I remember being at the at Cannes Film Festival one year with a, a friend of mine who was a, a TV news presenter, very beautiful. And I was there, you know, working for in distribution for something, for a company, um, for a production company. And she goes, oh, Rose, I got an invitation to Harvey Weinstein's uh, place at Hotel Du Cop. You know, do you want to come? I was like, no. She's like, why? I go, he walks around in a robe. I mean, with guests in his room. There's no way I'm going around that. And it's like, oh, but it's great. Everybody's going to be in the room. I said, I don't really care. Why would I put myself in that situation? Um, so it was, it was very much aware, um, but it wasn't just, you know, Harvey, it was, it was other people. Talk to us about the impact of Sundance in your career and the direction it took you before returning to Universal Pictures, the industry you knew best. So this was um, an interesting time in my life. So when I was at the report, I was there for a few years. Um, I worked under Lynn Siegel, who's an amazing, powerful woman. She really inspired me a lot. And um, I mean, she is, you know, pure toughness. Anyway, um, after three years, I, it was time for me to go. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, really finding a way to grow at The Hollywood Reporter. And I was getting a bit older. And I had met amazing people 
one guy was a guy named Bill Rohde. He was um, the president of MTV Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a quite powerful and uh, you know, promotional person in the industry. And I used my contacts and I said, you know, I, I'm ready to come work for a, you know, a network or a, you know, a studio. Can you give me a job? <laughs> And he goes, well, you have to come to London. And I said, of course, I'll come to London. So, you know, he had me fly there. I met with everyone on his team and he offered me a job. And it was a junior job because I was going to start my career in this new area. Um, but at that same time of getting that job and getting ready to move to London and, and start the whole visa process, I got a call from Sundance Institute for a big job, which was a director of studio partnerships. And so, you know, a part of me always wanting to come to London since I was 18 was on the table to work for a studio that I always wanted to work for. And then there was Sundance and that was a really hard choice. And I kind of gave up my dream to, to move to London and work for MTV to take this huge opportunity, which was um, the director of corporate development for the Sundance Institute, which was in charge of all of their, their fundraising and their finance for you know, their festival, their, their channel, their, um, their institute programs, like their writing labs. And it was also gonna put me very close with a lot of the producers and independent filmmakers and to really understand the inner workings of that from the making of an independent film to getting it into a festival, to getting it distributed, to, to finding that finance. And that was a huge part of what I needed to learn. Um, and so I, I took the, the role and had an interview with Robert Redford and, and got to present to the board with Sally Phil and Glenn Close. And that was just very wow for me. So at this stage, your career is building nicely. It's quite linear. And then you take the step to move to Argentina. Obviously, that had a profound impact on your fortunes. Please share a little bit about that decision. And that yes. Well, so after Sundance, I, I did get my studio job. I, I went to Universal Pictures, um, where I was a director of studio partnerships there. And that was like the Quan, as um, they say in Jerry Maguire. That was like my dream job. You know, I was like a senior executive at the biggest studio in the world with my corner office. Everything I had built for, worked for, wanted, I had. And... So what had happened in that I wanted to come in and do my best job ever because I wanted to prove myself so I could be promoted and have opportunities. So within a very short period of time of being there, I, I worked on a $200 million deal with Volkswagen, I, which, in, which closed and, you know, which um, the, the studio brought in. I worked on bringing in all by myself um, a $2 million deal with a company called Singular Wireless, which um, later became AT&T. Mm -hmm. um, they were the first company to host the um, iPhone through an exclusive deal. Yes. And this was big. And they were being integrated in all the home entertainment uh, products within Universal Pictures at the time. So home entertainment wasn't very cool or sexy, but I saw a huge opportunity for direct to home um, videos and the Bring It On trans, uh, franchise was one of my first projects. And so I got 2 million quid for it, $2 million for it. Amazing. And I got a lot of backlash for that. And instead of being praised and like being promoted quickly, I was told by my VP that had absolutely no experience um, who came from the music side, um, I'm gonna take control over this project um, and I'm gonna take the lead. And I said, no, you're not going back to <laughs> how I was raised. I said, I've worked really hard for this. I brought this in so I can you know, be noticed by the, the powers that be and be recognized for my work and to grow within this company. I've worked really hard to get this deal. And they said, yeah, no. And anyway, that didn't turn out really well. And I said, 
I'm not going to stay because at that point in my life, it's everything that I had wanted. And when I, when I saw that I was being treated in this way to take something that I did for somebody else to get credit for it, it, it just reminded me of all those amazing artists in the 60s and how record companies would come in and take their songs and say, it's great and you sing it great, but I'm going to give it to you know somebody else. else. And that wasn't going to happen to me on the business side. I wasn't going to allow it to happen to me. Um, and there was no way around that because you know the the studio system is is very protected through through layers, and you can only go so high above your your direct reports, and you also don't want to create that much noise. So I just decided to leave, and I left with my deal. And so they didn't get that deal in the end because I wasn't going to sign it over to them. And and Singular Wireless was was a very reputable company at the time. They knew what was going on, and they said we either do the deal with Rose, and we're not going to do it with anyone. And Universal tried to get me to stay, but I was so upset about it that I I bet on myself more and I didn't accept what was just going to be given to me and to be told that's what you're going to get accepted. So I had to walk away from my biggest dream that I worked so hard to get. And I had decided at the time that I didn't want to live in, um, I didn't want to work in the studio world anymore because I, I just felt, you know, if I can do, if I could be so successful and, and do something so great and not be recognized for that, what am I going to do? And so I wanted to leave and maybe go into a different industry, but I decided to get my master's before doing that so I could be armed with more um, power behind me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I decided to go to Argentina, pack up my life in um, LA for the first time, um, move to Argentina for three weeks to study for my GMAP and head to New York. But I got stuck in Argentina and I stayed for two years. I didn't do my GMAT and the media found its way back into my life. So <laughs> what an incredible story. And the fact that you were able to take that deal with you is a it's true testament to the work that you put into that project. Do you feel that they'd, they were trying to prevent you from doing that deal because of your race or gender? I think it had to do with the fact that there were people employed at the time that were not qualified to do their jobs above me and they were brought in from friends or peers or whomever and they wanted them to appear that they were doing good and my direct supervisor at the time Stephanie something she didn't do a single job a single deal not a single deal mm. and I think that that wasn't a way to to save Stephanie and I was disposable I guess in their eyes and you know whether it's race or it's not you know the, the argument's always well, I hired you, so I can't be, you know, racist in a way. And that's what it's always thrown out. But, you know, I think that there's, there is this unconscious bias. I know that people don't believe in that in certain places, but I do believe in that. And I think that people just feel, you know, that person's disposable. That person, I don't have to worry about it. It's like, you know, if you go to a hotel, maybe that receptionist isn't racist, but they're probably going to unconsciously give you the worst room in the place. And they're going to give, you know, someone that looks like Bill Clinton, the best room, whether he's Bill Clinton or not. So I think this is what was going on at the time. And whether they even realized it or they didn't realize it, I was being affected. And that that's um, that's sad. But you know what? I, I took it with a grain of salt and been like, then you're not going to get access to my ability and talents. I'll take yeah. them elsewhere. Good on you. Okay, so bringing us into our, our third and final section, we have another final piece of music from you, Luke Bryan. Most people are good. I know you have a message in this one. I, I love this song, okay, because I think that the world is in like chaos and I think that everybody takes everything to the extreme and it's like these people are bad, those people are bad, those people don't care and it's like, no, okay, 
that's not true. You know, if everybody went by the nightly news, we would all lose faith in humanity. Okay. Most people are good. You know, they, they want to just put a roof over their head, put food on the table, pay their bills, spend time with their kids, raise good kids and, and leave something behind. And, you know, we are all on a daily basis living our lives 98% of the time. And then sometimes, you know, there's some bad people. And that's across every single race, background, religion, creed, bad people. And they, spo they spoil it for everyone. And then people lose faith in humanity. They lose faith in people with different skin tones. And it, it really saddens me. And this song kind of reinforces that, wait a minute, let's take a step back and remember that we are all human beings and most people have each other's back because most people are good. And I, I live by that. I love that. That's a great, great mantra and a great way to live. So at this point, you're now in New York and decide to almost start from scratch by building the audio network. How did you go about that? Yeah, so I went to New York um, to, to start a new life. I think there was like something with itching in me that I wanted to, to, to explore. Um, I got an offer to work for a company named Audio Network, which was a UK-based um, music publishing company that was using technology to, to um, really push music um, and increase um, a composer's um, licensing rights. And I didn't know much about music at the time. It wasn't my background. But what I was fascinated about was how they were using technology to aggregate all of this different composer's music and get it out to producers and editors to use to increase royalties. And, you know, I had talked to my father at the time about starting my own business and you know, he's like, you know, you've worked for some pretty big companies, you've learned a lot, but you also need to understand what it's like to work for a startup, um, because it's not the same. You know, you don't have your Harvard, Columbia people working alongside you. You don't have, you know, massive amounts of money to throw at problems. You have to really work it. And he recommended that I um, take this opportunity, which was, you know, a small, it was like, you know, I used to have an office at the Lee Wasserman building on a studio lot. And I remember going up the stairs in New York, like, um, you know, 22nd or 23rd street into like this awful, awful walk up. And I was like, oh my God, I took the company from 2 million to $10 million. I really grew it in the US. I brought on, you know, global contracts with Disney and Sony and Nike under my team. And, um, you know, the company eventually sold for, you know, almost $325 million, um, you know, to a major company, E1. And, you know, I, I th seeing that just really made me see, you know, wow, I just built this company for somebody else. And I only have a small percentage of shares in it. What could I do if I, if I unleashed on myself? That's incredible. So bringing us up to date, Screen TV Hits is described as a curated app-based streaming aggregator. Can you please elaborate on that for our listeners? Yes, well, it's Screen Hits TV. And um, so it basically allows us to allows us, it allows customers to integrate their existing streaming services into one. So what that means out of the business jargon is that if you have Disney, you have Netflix, you have Amazon, right now what you're most likely doing is going into one app and searching in that app. Mm, find something, no, don't like anything. Then you open up another app, probably Amazon, where you just buy something. Even though you had Disney, which it was already available on, on your other streamer, but you just didn't have the, the patience to open up another app and do the whole search again. So Screen Hits allows you to have one app with all of these streamers and one search. And you can see what's trending across all of them, what you've been watching across all of them. You can see what your friends are watching. You know, it's just the best way to discover content. And I think that we've become 
you know, so focused on, you know, there's so much opportunity, you know, people are transitioning from pay TV, you know, paying a hundred dollars a month or 80 pounds a month, having a satellite dish on the roof, having a set top box. And they don't have to do that anymore. The industry has decided to go direct to consumer. They're using their entire online platform. And, you know, we're, we're kind of at a, a place where people can save money and they can have a better viewing experience and they can find better um, content. And so that's what that's what Screen Hits does. And, and I, I love it because I've, I've discovered Godfather of Harlem that I would never have searched for because let me tell you, it's not promoted. Anywhere. I don't see any ads for it anywhere. I don't hear of it on like the radio, but yet it is one of the best films that my English husband and I love watching with Forrest Whitaker. It's a TV series, actually. And I discovered it through screen hits. So it's great. I'm adding that to my list right now. <laughs> I love a good list of things to watch. <laughs> yes. If you go to screen hits, you really do. You really get to just kind of discover and find things um, in an amazing way. And I, I love it. I love the interface. So you should actually download the app and, and check it out. I will. Um, so screen hits has some extraordinary relationships with some of the globe's largest companies, including Disney, Netflix, Amazon. What is the unique selling point that's attracting these business heavyweights? Well, I, you know, screen hits um, started out in 2012 as um, a business to business platform where our customers were the studios. We really worked with them to help them increase their, their revenues across their content globally through licensing. And um, when everybody started to create their own direct-to-consumer platforms, um, which is, you know, Disney+, Plus, et cetera, we saw that there was going to be a massive um, influx of content in the market. And how were they going to be seen? Because you just can't have 30 apps on a home screen. And, and how are you going to get one consumer out of one app into another app? And, you know, how is the consumer going to get the best use of all their services they subscribe to? Because if they don't open it and they don't use it, they're going to get rid of the app, which is going to increase churn. So a lot of the big studios, um, Disney, for example, they first want to be where the customer is. Whatever the customer wants is what Disney wants. Disney is a big supporter of aggregators. Um, they want their content to be discovered at the point of content discovery. So when that customer is saying, I want to watch something tonight, they want to ensure that their content is there. And they're very um, savvy, the the studio world. They're, they're not like the music industry that took a while to, to kind of figure it out. I think that the, the entertainment industry has learned quite quickly that direct-to-consumer streaming video services is the future. Look at Disney. I mean, they've just decided that is going to be their number one product across all of their products in, in, in their business. And we're seeing it across the board and it's the most exciting time. And we're so happy that they are working with us and giving us that opportunity to provide this uh, fantastic, beautifully designed product for the consumer and to help promote their content. As a black woman operating in a white male-dominated sphere, how have you overcome what I imagine are substantial hurdles? Obviously, men have been at the head for a very long time. Um, women, no matter their color, were once all property of men. I mean, it's not just slaves. I mean, we're talking black women, white women, Asian women were all property of men at one point. And, you know, women have really fought for their rights and have, you know, pushed the, the envelope for it to be able to read and to learn and to work and to give their opinions and to be heard. And we've come so far for that. Um, you know, I've been growing up in that transition of women's rights and, you know, being a woman of a darker skin tone, try, uh, skin tone trying to operate in this environment, I've always recognized it. 
but I am one to pull off the hood on anybody that tries to hide behind it and block me. Um, you don't have to like me, but if I have a good product and I have an ability to help somebody make money, then I deserve to have that chance. And throughout my career, um, I, 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 people thought, hey, if she's going to make us money, most people, you know, we want to, to work with her because she's very good at what she does, developing screen hits and, and trying to maneuver. Yes, VCs don't want to give us money, okay? It's less than 0.06%. We all know the figures. But as my father says, that doesn't mean that I can't find a way to just monetize my products and just, you know, pay my dues and suffer a little bit harder for 10 years. It'll take a decade. I could have had it done in two years if I had proper investment money of 100 million, 50 million, could have been done. I have proven myself for the, my entire career to be successful at the things that I've done, but yet they still won't invest that money and they invested in somebody that writes an idea down on a napkin. You know, if you look back in the twenties and at, um, I think it was in St. Louis, um, you know, people were not able to become doctors in certain parts of America. They were not able to become lawyers. They were, they were not given the opportunity. So they decided in their own community to become you know, construction workers, developers, um, lawyers, doctors, and they built this successful, you know, Black Wall Street. And, and what happened? People with hoods came on in the dark of the night and burnt it down. Now, that still goes on because people may not be burning things down, but they may be preventing people from getting the finance to accelerate and grow. They may be blocking people from partnerships to partner with some of the big conglomerates in the world um, to prevent them from getting to that top stage. But again, take off your hood. If anyone tries to block um, me from a product that I believe is good and that people want to use for no reason and work with competitors that may not look with me, then I think it's important to, to bring that out. Um, and, and that's what I will just continue to do. It's exhausting and it's boring, but you know we have to just kind of look forward and, and continue to, to build great things and not constantly feel I can't do it because my wings are clipped because no one can clip your wings because you don't have to stay in the coop. I love that. No one can clip your wings. You don't have to stay in the coop. So with all of that said, you did manage to raise $6.2 million worth of finance. How easy was that for you to access, you know, that essential growth capital, which is the lifeblood of any commercial enterprise? It wasn't easy, but you know I have great um, investors, great angel investors who have been with me from the beginning that support me, that fund the company, um, that believe in the team, and they continue to to do this. So I feel very fortunate. Um, you know, we recently you know brought on you know the Guinnesses. Um, you know, they are a very powerful, strong family, and they see the benefit in screen heads. And you know, I continue to to look towards investors and people that believe in my product, that believe in the brand, that believe in our idea and want to support us on the journey and be part of it. And they don't see color as a deterrent. And anyone that does see color as a deterrent, then I don't want to be in their um, presence anyway. And I guess it's interesting you said before that, you know, 100 million was kind of what you needed, but you raised 6.2 million. So are you still working to try and get more investment? Yes, um, we're always looking for investment, um, but we're also always looking for, you know, partnerships with, you know, big global brands and and pushing our product out there and, and you know, getting, you know, millions of, of subscribers and, you know, whichever one comes first. I mean, 
God willing, um, you know, I get to my 20 million subscribers in the next, you know, 18 months through the work that we've been doing um, without the need for investment, because that puts me in a very different position. Um, but then also, if there is a VC fund or a company or an institution that, that really loves what we're doing and they want to support that, and they want to come on and help us get there that much faster and, and make us the only, you know, app to go to for the future viewing of streaming and, and live TV, then that's great. You know, we, we're the first company to create a child pen that prevents children from accessing any um, content above the age of 13 across all their streaming services. Doesn't matter if they're watching it on their phone, their tablet, um, in the car, they, we're the first ones. And that should be recognized. And, you know, whether that's recognized now or later when, you know, we, we float, it'll be recognized. I love that. So many founders are faced with an impossible situation where they end up completely diluting or having negligible equity in the business that they've built, certainly with great sacrifice and often incurring lots of personal debt. Have you faced a similar trap? Yes, I think so. But, you know, I still own a, a large um, chunk of the company and, you know, a lot of people that I care about own another chunk of it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a catch 22, 10% of a billion dollar company is worth a lot more than 90% of a 10,000 pound company. So that's something to always remember. There's also ways that founders can protect themselves by giving themselves more votes per share. Um, you know, not being diluted below a certain amount, which gives them still blocking rights. You know, your shareholders are also taking a risk, you know, they're giving you, you money and they're, they're betting on a dream. And, you know, they, they can look at all the, the finances and the numbers and, and take a chance, but most, most um, startups fail. So I think that there has to be a happy medium between both. I don't think that founders should be pushed out. I mean, one of the, the common um, situations is that when a, when a founder does do all the hard work, they, they, they increase debt on their credit cards. They have to, you know, take a charge against their, their, their properties. You know, they have to take out a second mortgage. They have to do all these things to keep a company going because they can't raise finance. And then they, they get the company to make a lot of money through selling more units or getting more subscribers. Then they finally get an investor coming in saying, we'll give you a hundred million to grow. But then they say, you know, what you were doing was great at the beginning, but now this is a serious company and we need serious players. And they push the, the founder out. They tried that with Mark Zuckerberg. They try it with a lot of people. And so one of the benefits that um, Black founders can find in the unfair treatment of not getting VC investment is they don't have to deal with that because they're going to own their companies. And if they can find a way to make it work, they're going to be in a much more powerful position. I love that you've made that positive because it, that could definitely be a negative uh, position for a Black founder. So in the last 18 months, um, there have been some huge issues of racial disparity. What was your initial thoughts when you heard of the killing of George Floyd? You know, it's, it's difficult. I grew up in L.A. during the L.A. riots. I, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, EZE and um, NWA and just the brutality that was explained, you know, expressively through through media at the time and through music. And even though I didn't see it because I was in a very um, safe and enclosed um, area and none of that drama ever really crossed um, the, the borders down to Santa Monica, I guess borders, wow, it's kind of like that, I guess. Um, it was a shock still. And, you know, I still, when I see a police car behind me, um, my heart jumps, you know, I don't, and I think, where does that come from? You know, I've never been abused by the police or anything like that, but it does jump. And when I saw that happening, I was just in shock that somebody 
anybody thinks that they could just kill somebody in broad daylight like that to believe that somebody could just kill another human being in broad daylight like that and to disregard a human being like that. And that wasn't just how a, you know, a black person felt. This is how all people felt. All people felt that this is insane. And I can't believe that this has happened. And it's been happening. And this is the sad thing. It's been happening. And people have basically ignored the, 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 the situation. And this is what I think George Floyd did create. Um, and it sparked a revolution um, around the world of people being treated unfairly. How do you tackle racism, covert or otherwise, as a mother of two young children? How do you approach such a sensitive subject? I think my my daughters are two and six. I mean, Verity is just now getting to the age where I have to start explaining things to her. Um, it's a tricky one because, you know, my parents protected me from it, but I was also raised around, you know, a, a strong black family. You know, I had I was surrounded by beautiful black women and black men because of my cousins and my you know uncles and everyone. So I was you know, I had that. My daughter doesn't have that very much here. You know, I try my best to, you know, um, have many friends from different backgrounds so she can, she can see that. Um, I've talked to her school. I've, I've said, you know, my daughter's, what's the curriculum? My daughter's not going to learn about, you know, African heritage through slavery because there's so much more to our history than those 300 years of slavery. And actually every single person, including the English were enslaved, but that never gets talked about. So I want my daughters to learn about the kingdoms of Africa. Um, let's talk about the Kingdom of Benin in the 1200s, 1300s, not towards the end when the British Empire came and burned it down because they refused to continue in the slave trade because of what was happening. But before then, when they were selling gold and cloth to Portugal, why does no one talk about that? And my daughter's school has actually changed the curriculum this year, and they have now um, replaced it with the Mayans, and they're talking about Africa and the African kingdoms. Um, Benin being one of them. And I said, you know, and, and, and this is like a very sensitive t- uh, topic amongst a lot of people about Black History Month, um, because I understand that at one point, no one ever talked about Black history. And so we had to have a dedicated month to it. But Black people are not any different than white people. So we should be talked about throughout the whole year. And I really mean that. Um, and not to to take away from all the work that's been done, but we have to continue to pro- progress. And I want my daughters to not learn about Black people one month of the year. I want when they're talking about the best mathematicians, the best astronauts, the best doctors, that this is included throughout the entire curriculum, throughout the whole year, because I don't want my daughter to feel, or my daughters to feel, that they're different. Like, why do I have to keep seeing Black Lives Matters? Obviously, your life matters, okay? But she doesn't understand that. She doesn't understand what that that tagline means. She doesn't connect it to the death of George Floyd. She doesn't connect it to like the, the last the hundreds and hundreds of years of abuse. She doesn't understand because in my daughter's mind, you know, everybody's lives matter. All humans' lives matter. And so I try to explain that, you know, some people are not treated fairly. And right now there's a movement for people to see that everybody needs to be treated fairly. But I really try to raise her without a single ounce of doubt in her mind that there is no question. And she doesn't need somebody to tell her that her life matters because she will know it from her bones and she will share that with her friends. And whenever somebody may say something about her mother or about other people, she will correct them because it's a part of her veins. So that's how I, I live with it. And again, if somebody wants to believe that the earth is flat, by all means, go ahead and believe that people with the D- darker skin tone are different. It's so in- 
it's so ignorant that I can't even give them the headspace. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rose, you've already enjoyed a fruitful and fascinating journey as a professional and more recently as an entrepreneur with the best yet to come. We ask all of our guests to make a pledge for the future. What is your pledge? Well, my pledge for the future, something that I want to do and I've always wanted to do, is that I want to help um, underrepresented people, whether male or women, who are unable to find investment to get their ideas off the ground and to build them. Because I believe that there is so much opportunity in many countries, including the many countries in Africa, where opportunity is being given to people from different countries. And, you know, those that are living there that can see the problems, that can understand the problems, are not able to access investment. They're not able to get the programs they need to, to build for the future. And I want to use any um, profits that I have personally to invest. And, you know, a lot of people are getting these micro loans, which I completely disagree with. It should be an investment of equity and not taking 60%, taking 10 or 20% and helping them to get it off the ground because it just makes the entire world a better place. It makes trade a better place and it creates opportunity. And so that's what I would like to do. That's my pledge. Sadly, I think that's all we have time for, but I could sit and chat to you all day. Thank you, Rose Hulse, for joining me today, opening up about your fascinating life and remarkable relationships and future aspirations. I know this episode will stay with us all for a long time. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society, please email us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.